Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. If you find the right early-stage customer, then that is going to allow you to find uh, your product market fit, right? If they're willing to sit by your side and help you sort of shape the innovation so that, you know, they can confirm it creates value, that's how you find that product market fit. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Vary. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices and the Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Vary, and today we're joined by Stefan Neusser, Chief Product Officer at Fetch Robotics. We're going to be talking about sustainability in the robotics as a service industry. Stefan, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Ryan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I you know I always tee people up and and ask them to tell us a little bit about their company. But I understand that we're breaking some exciting news here today. We we did our pre-interview about a month ago, but I understand just in the last few days you guys are announcing that you've been acquired. What what can you tell us about Fetch? What can you tell us about the acquisition? Give us a little background. Yeah, I'll be happy to talk about that. So we've been we we are now formally part of Zebra Technologies. We've, we've pre-announced this, I think, a month ago, and it closed three days ago, so it's literally fresh off the press. I'm very excited about this. Fetch Robotics has been an independent venture-funded company for about six years. We've built collaborative robots that are used primarily in manufacturing, in um, logistics and supply chain and warehouses. And, and, and I, I've always felt Zebra has been an investor in Fetch. They've been a partner of ours. We've worked together for you know two years or so. So there's been there's been a lot of trust. There's a good understanding um, on both sides what the other company does, and I'm, I'm I'm really excited about this. I think Zebra is a terrific home as a as a, as a company. Zebra caters to the same audience. They do barcode scanners. They do wearable devices. They do printers for 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 the same space, right? For warehouses, for factories, they are very partner friendly. They have a very large partner ecosystem. They, they literally, with most of the customers that Fetch has, uh, they're also customers of, of Zebra. Most of the partners or many of the partners that Fetch has been working with are also partners to Zebra. So it, it really feels like we're, we're sort of getting, if you want, an amplification on the go-to-market side, on the technology side, and, and that's great. And, and the other thing that, that I, I really like about, about that that outcome is, is is Zebra is a product company, right? And 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 when you when you think about how automation gets brought to market today, a lot of it is custom, right? It's it's a services deliverable, and so I'm thrilled that we're part of a larger product organization. This brings strategy, this brings understanding the market deeply, this brings a, a methodical, planned approach on how you put a product in the market because you expect it to be a generalization. You expect to build something once. For many of your customers, and, and that is, it, it requires a mindset that that we have at Fetch, and, and that I also see in Zebra. So I think it's an excellent outcome, and I'm I'm really happy that that's where we are, and I'm very excited about what the next couple of years are going to bring. Very cool. Um, we have a, a podcast producer here, the the person behind the show, Kayla, that that helps make this show possible. 
and she works so hard to put together these scripts. And then I, I instantly throw them in the trash, go off scripts. Um, I was saying before the show, I'm even worse than Trump when it comes to staying on script. I, I would love to unpack what makes a good partner, you know, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit about, more about you guys' core products. So let's let's dive a little bit more first into what you guys built, what, what some of the signals were that you were building the right things and things like that. And then I'd love to just totally derail off script and talk about, because this Zebra news is hot off the press, no time to prepare, but I'm very always very curious to learn what were the things that made this partnership, any partnership, uh, but in this case with Zebra, a winner for you guys, where were the synergies that you were looking for and what that looked like? But Yeah, no, that that's actually a great way to frame it, right? So let, let me start with our products, right? So so Fetch, Fetch is selling autonomous mobile robots, right? So those are material moving robots. They're not robots with arms. They're not robots that look like humans. They're robots that are, are like platforms, carts, shelves, right? Vehicles that are designed to move material and work with people. Right, so these AMRs are what we call collaborative robots. They are designed to work around people. Right, so you see them, for example, in the pick module, where you have associates and, and workers, you know, move around the robots. We have them in factories on a factory floor. Again, this people people around the robots is 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 how the product is designed. Right, so it's called the collaborative robot, and it is it is designed to help workers be sort of focused on, on the higher value, value-added things, right? So you can free up the time that people spend moving stuff around. You can have the robot do that. And the the operator then has more time to do other things, right? To do things that are more complicated and create more value than just taking a cart and pushing it you know, up and down a warehouse, right? So the product is material-moving robots. They, they come in different form factors. I think part of what distinguishes Fetch from some of the other players in the AMR space is we have a whole fleet of AMRs ranging from one that moves about 100 kilograms to one that moves 500 kilograms to one that's a ton and a half, right? So there's a whole range of material moving robots there. They're all connected to the cloud. So there isn't a software component to them. It's very easy to deploy. It's not unusual for us to deploy a robot like that in three days. And usually when we do that, we spend the third day, you know, knowledge transfer and teaching folks, right? So we get these up and running in a day or two. They're really flexible. They're easy once you have them to change and make them do different things. So it's a very flexible tool that helps uh, the human worker in a factory, in a warehouse, you know, frees up some of their time so that they can focus on doing more important things. Right? That in a nutshell is sort of the, the value proposition of the, the, the Fetch product lineup. If you now look at what, what Zebra does, is, is their focus is devices that make the, the human worker more productive, right? So there is a focus on the Zebra side with barcode scanners, with um, workflow orchestration, with um, all the, the variables and the devices that they offer to make warehouse workers more efficient. And that is why I think of this as a really good partnership, right? There is a, a focus on our side in, in building robots that collaborate with humans, there's a focus on the zebra side in making those humans more efficient, right? So by bringing those two perspectives together, you end up with a, a more efficient, collaboratively automated warehouse, right? Where you get more value out of the humans, but it's still a, a, a world in which the human worker drives the process and drives the work. You know, it's when, a, uh, I don't know, in high school or college or when young people are in that, you know, dating stage, 
there's often this question, oh, when did you notice me? You know, and the other person, oh, I don't know. You know, when did you think that I was something special? Can you pull back the onion? I'm sure you would never have wanted to lay your cards out too early to zebra, but now <laughs> this is a this is a done deal. At what point did you guys look at zebra and say, hey, this is a partnership that has real legs? We don't want to tip our hand yet, but or maybe you did. But at what point did you guys say internally, this zebra thing is a partnership that makes a lot of sense uh, and could potentially go to the next level? You know, from my perspective, very early on when we started collaborating, right? When you when, when you partner, when you work together, then you learn about each other. And and it was it was fairly evident early on that that there is a, a shared perspective that we have that's that's really well aligned, right? We're, we're both, and I, I go back to what I said five minutes ago. We're both product companies, and and that it is a a mindset, right? It is the the process of developing a strategy, understanding the market, developing a product, finding product market fit, experimenting, learning, you know, being articulate about your strategy and your assumptions. That is something that that fetches a, a company that builds a hardware product. We have to do this a lot. And Zebra as a company that builds hardware products has the same mindset, right? Zebra is, is very clear about their hypothesis. They're very clear about what space we want to go in, how we want to create value, very articulate about that. And and that in, in my mind, like that that mindset, the product mindset is is what made me think from day one, you know, this this is a real fit, right? They're, they're a really good partner, right? Because in, in a way you, you assess your partners in the same way that you assess a potential acquirer, right? It, it is always a first step towards potentially a deeper relationship of some kind, right? An acquisition obviously is sort of the end of that journey. But but you do you do bet and you you sort of ask yourself these questions the moment you start partnering. And and it was like it has been evident for me that there is really good alignment. You, you've mentioned clarity and focus or synonyms for those a few times today. What did the product development process look like for you guys? Everybody I've ever talked to, ha, you know, experiences these big failures. They go down a path isn't quite right. Some people are really comfortable talking about them. Some people not at all. But what what did it look like for you guys to land? In, in a place where you've built a product that your partners love, your customers love, uh, solves important problems. You know, what were some of the, I don't know, pitfalls along the way where you went, kind of went down a path and said, okay, this, you know, maybe they were false signals. It looked like you were going in a promising direction only to need to back out. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And, and it, it, at Fetch, I was head of product, right? So that is that is pretty much the story of my life. Um, sure. I've done product development for probably 15, 20 years, right? So that that is, I can talk about that until you shut me down. <laughs> um, it's it's the, no, like that, that is in my mind what, what what it's all about like like how do you find you know what's called product market fit right like how do you know you built the right thing how can you find out as early as possible and it's is to be honest it's a humbling process it's, it's so in, in my mind let, let me frame this a little in my mind it's different for a, a b2b product right so when you're catering to enterprises you work differently than when you cater to um, consumers and ultimately when you cater to enterprises you, you have to learn a lot about the domain that you're going into Right. When you work on a consumer product, you know, when you sign off at the end of your day, you become a consumer. Right. It's it's possible for you to have an intuition about a consumer product because you are a consumer. Right. I have never run a warehouse. Right. I have never run a factory. I've never run um, a pharmaceutical manufacturing operation. Right. So I depend on learning in the market. So 
everything everything is colored by the fact that we're building for a domain that that we're not native in. And so as as fetch, our our strength is technology, right? Fetch was built on the foundation of the work that was done in Willow Garage, where the open source RAS software layer was built, where the early exploratory work around collaborative robots was done. The founder of Fetch was the sort of the, the, the lead of the robotics team at Willow. So we we built on, on sort of the shoulders of the work that was done at Willow. But we, 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 the foundation for what we do is, is technology, is robotics, right? We, to this day, we contribute to the open source community. We have robots that we sell for researchers. We are steeped in the technology of robotics, right? That is what's, what's easy, what's natural for us, right? The, the language that you hear when you sit in the fetch cafeteria is the language of robotics. So now you say, okay, how do I build a, what is the right domain for us to go into? So you look at where, where are the pain points, where's the, the sort of the big pull for that kind of technology. And when you settle on a domain, as, as we did with manufacturing and logistics, then you start asking yourself, how can we contribute value, right? And now you got to put yourself into the position of the customer, right? The receiving company. And since you're B2B, now, now you start thinking about the return on investment, right? Like, how can I create value? How, how is that value measured? What are the KPIs, the metrics the customer cares about? And then, frankly... In my mind, you, you you try and get something into the hands of one of these customers as quickly as you can, right? So you you, you have to find the pilot customer that's that's willing to engage early stage. There's a lot of hit or miss there. There's a lot of luck, right? If you find the right early stage customer, then that is going to allow you to find uh, your product market fit, right? If they're willing to sit by your side and help you sort of shape the innovation so that you know they can confirm it creates value. That's how you find that product market fit, right? And and from that moment on, it's it's trial and error, right? You you build partnerships with early stage customers, you build good relationships, you 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 iterate as quickly as you can. And if your product has a, a hardware component, that makes it a little bit more interesting, right? Because it is easier to iterate on software than it is to iterate on hardware, right? And again, there's ways. There's ways to to sort of mitigate that, right? You can make your hardware flexible. You can make your hardware programmable, and and our AMRs are like that, right? So it's it's possible for us to update the programming on the robot, and we can so iterate on the hardware by reprogramming the hardware, right? So there's there's tricks there, but fundamentally the journey is is one of experimentation, of trial and error, and, and so gradually you you sort of shape that product. Um, you have a hypothesis. This is how I'm going to create value. You work with that pilot customer to confirm that your hypothesis comes through. You recruit a second and a third customer. And then at some point, you have that, that sort of confidence that you've created a good generalization because that's ultimately what a product is. It's, it's, a, it's a generalization, right? So you're doing something for one customer is not enough, right? You have to do it in such a way that you can lift it and move it over to customer two and customer three. And then that would be good evidence that the generalization is good. And then I think you you sort of, You've got growing confidence as you're on the right path. You know, hearing you talk about your product market fit process, it sounds so similar to the scientific method. You know, have a hypothesis, test the hypothesis, repeat, repeat, repeat. Is that, I mean, have you deliberately kind of thought through, hey, I, I recognize this process. I, you know, know this from a previous chapter of my career. It, it sounds like you have kind of deliberately built your process that way. 
it, it is certainly inspired that it, it, it has it has a, a sort of a social and, and an economic component. And, and of course, in the social sciences, that's part of the scientific process, right? right? But if you, when you say scientific process, are you thinking the, you know, physics, the natural sciences, where everything is hard facts? You have the additional dimension here that you're working with people, right? It's, it's B2B, right? When you're building a product for B2C, then, then your customers, you know, if it's, if it's a, a, you know, a cloud-based product, your customers may be in the millions, right? And you may think about them in terms of statistics. When you work with enterprise customers, you have relationships, right? And that, that for me, that adds another dimension, right? Because, because there are these quantitative aspects, but then there's also the qualitative ones, like how, how can you connect with that customer? How do you reach that customer? Right? Does the product need explaining? How do you get the right, you know, what I like to call consultative delivery, right? Some, some products don't just get configured on the website and shipped out, right? They need to be explained. They need to be customized. Right, so so it it has that 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 people and relationship dimension, and of course the economic dimension. Right, you got to create value. You mentioned open source earlier. I know another piece of the puzzle you guys are passionate about is modularity and building robots that have you know sort of modular reusable component pieces. Can you talk about you guys' philosophy there? And then I know you know what's coming next. I want to know, and I ask this a lot. Why in the world isn't the consumer side doing the same thing? Why are my Sonos speakers closed black boxes with zero reusable components and yet they cost $800 and have a very short fixed life? It, this speaker will not work in three years. Talk about you guys' philosophy and then let's, let's poke at consumer a little bit with me today. Yeah, um, I'll be happy to. So, so let, let, let me start with with sort of the, the enterprise space, right? When you build the the economics are different. I, I think that fundamentally is the the answer below the line, right? When you build a product for millions and millions of customers, right? The economies the economies of scale are so powerful that it makes sense to you to build a one size fits all, and that one size fits all then is going to include components that aren't always used, right? I have a I have a a wonderful MacBook here. It has a powerful graphics accelerator. I only run my web browser on this on this notebook ever, right? But it doesn't make sense for the manufacturer of that of that laptop here to create a version with and a version without graphics accelerator. The, the economies of scale are set that it makes more sense to build a one size fits all. Now, both the fact that we're in B two B and the fact that that robotics as a technology is is different than semiconductor, right? A, a lot of time when when you say product, I, I think you, you're visualizing something that has semiconductor components, right? Like your Sonos speaker. But robots are a little different. They have motors. They have they have components that interact with the physical world. And the one-size-fits-all approach is is much harder to do there, right? Building, you know, it, it is it is not true that you build a robot that can move 500 kilogram, and it's a good fit for everything up to 500 kilogram, right? Including 10 and 20 and 30, right? A robot that's built to move 20, 30 kilogram is going to look different, right? A robot, and, and you're going to have many more requirements to meet when you build one that moves 500 kilogram, right? So it's going to be a very different animal. And it just isn't an option to design a one-size-fits-all. And for everyone who wants to move just 20 kilograms, say, hey, use the big one and just don't use that extra capacity, right? The same thing is true for the skin, for example, right? If you want a robot that is waterproof, then that's usually a separate a separate model, right? So the economics drive these decisions, and what you see in with robots in the B two space is you see choices, right? You see more special purpose designs that are built for certain environments. You know, one for clean room, 
um, one for outdoors, um, one for you know food and, and and those type of environments, one for very hot environments. So you have the economics dictates, um, you know, some level of specialization, right? And so that's why you see a whole lineup of robots in, in our portfolio. Now, talking about sustainability, I think, again, the, the B2B space is different than the B2C space, right? The, the enterprise customer, in my mind, is driven by an, an ROI, primarily. There isn't sort of the emotional component of, of ownership and of owning a new thing. Right. So we, we have a program that allows our customers to get a robots as a service. Right? It's called RAS. And instead of buying the robot outright and owning it for the duration of the life of the robot, the useful lifespan of the, the, the machine, you rent it basically for a certain period of time. And you get a lot of flexibility. You get a single rate. You can grow that footprint, right? So if you if you sort of have five RAS robots and you want an extra five, it's very easy to grow. If you want an extra three over four months of the year, there is search um, pricing models that we use for that, right? So it gives the customer flexibility. It's attractive. What it essentially means that we're promising the customer an outcome, right? You get the capability to move the payload that you want to move, and we own. The, keeping the machine running that does it, right? And so if the customer is done with that robot then they give it back to us, we refurbish it and we give it to the next customer, right? And since the customer wants the outcome, the service, they don't care about getting a new robot, right? It's not emotionally about owning a new thing. It's about getting an outcome. I can move 100 kilogram, you know, a thousand times a day from A to B. And we essentially guarantee that um, because we keep the machine running and we maintain it and we replace the parts that we are out and then robot reaches end of life, we take it back, we put a new one in and so on, right? Customer doesn't have to worry about that at all. So I think the RAS model on the B2B side, on the enterprise side is is a good step, an important step towards sustainability. And that's part of the motivation for why, why, why we're doing it. We don't like robots that don't run, right? We, you know, a, a, a B2C device man manufacturer May not may not dislike you having you know the previous generation of a product and maybe two generations of a product sitting on the shelf somewhere, right? But we do not like robots that sit somewhere and do not run. We want our robots to be moving. Um, I do not like when I visit a customer. I don't. I do not like seeing a robot that's not moving. My first question is, hey, what did you get this robot for? Why is it not moving? Right. So, I see the 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 RAS the as a service model as a way to drive up um, the utilization of the robots that are in the field. I want to drag you back to consumer for a second and, and like continue to push you outside of your comfort zone. And, and then when we have consumer device manufacturers on the show, of course, we have them talk about robotics and we like to keep everybody off balance here and over the air. So one of the things we do at Very is, you know, we'll do a lot of the app development, the firmware work, like a lot of the work related to the ongoing maintenance and improvement of industrial commercial, but also consumer grade electronics like a television. If you have a, a connected television and one of our clients is, you know, one of the largest television manufacturers in the world, we make the software that gets uh, pushed to their devices. If for the first time, you know, if you bought a TV, if you bought an RCA, remember RCA, if you bought an RCA television in the 80s, which was, you know, state of the art, 27 inch color television, when you bought that television, that was the end of the transaction. And maybe you bought an extended warranty, but I don't even think that was a thing they sold back then. So buying that television was the end of the transaction. They got all the money they were going to get from you and they were done servicing 
or putting money into that television. They weren't pushing updates out. Now you've got firmware, you've got, you know, different app updates that need to be made to, you know, I don't know, I think iPhone is probably still supporting like the iPhone 7 or the iPhone 6, but they don't support the iPhone 3. They'll decommission that. They'll say, we're done supporting that device. A part of that is they're saying, hey, we're done incurring cost relative to that legacy piece of equipment. So now you're looking at a market where, you know, a television can be aged out of existence because they're not going to ship the updates required to keep it functioning. Um, Do you think that that's going to push consumer devices in a direction of this as a service model that we've seen elsewhere where they say, hey, you're just going to rent the hardware from us. We're going to keep it operational for a period of time. And then rather than decommissioning and giving you this terrible experience, we're just going to replace it with the next thing and maybe your rate of pay changes. Do you think that's a direction we're headed I, I think so. And it's it's actually, I'm being you know, off the cuff since I'm outside of my comfort zone. I think actually it's, a, it's an exciting opportunity that, that comes out of the fact that you, you're developing a relationship with the manufacturer of the device, right? So the more the value isn't encapsulated in the TV you bought, the more the, the value is encapsulated in a relationship with the provider, right? The more it becomes a service, right? The servitization of the product, I think is the trend that opens the door for eventually saying, hey, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a transition, a very long-ranging transition. Right from in, in the old days, it was you get a product and, and you forget about who the manufacturer was, right? And now it is you have a relationship with that manufacturer, right? You, I have a, I have a Samsung TV, I have a Samsung account, right? So, so gradually, I'm, I'm, I'm building a relationship, and of course, the manufacturer wants that, right? The manufacturer learns more about me. The manufacturer can shift from selling a piece of hardware to selling an experience that's a little more tailored. Right? And I think one effect of that is going to be that eventually the hardware is going to diminish in the significance of the overall experience. And I, I see perfectly possible that you're going to be able to return the hardware and get a new one. And it's going to cost you a little bit. Right? It's not going to be a seamless, hey, send me a new TV. But it becoming a relationship with the manufacturer, it becoming a service, opens the door, I think, for a more sustainable model. I think it's it's such an interesting time. I think there's a very high probability that people are going to look back from the vantage point of 2030 and view 2021 as unrecognizable from a consumer perspective. One of the things we don't have time to talk about today, and it was a huge part of the program in the Zebra announcement uh, took its, its slot, but was this idea of electronic waste, you know, and how you guys at Fetch have worked really hard to ensure or seemingly, at least from the research we've done, to ensure minimal to zero waste. Things are reusable, they're repurposable. We're, you know, we're obviously not at all seeing that on the consumer side, but to talk just briefly, if you can, about how you got, you said, hey, a, a robot that isn't moving is a robot that's not being fully utilized. Talk about a robot that whose function maybe it, it has evolved and how, how do you, what's your viewpoint on that? Excellent question, right? So the robot, think of the robot as a as, as a computer with wheels, right? So that's that's how programmable these these devices are, right? So we, we you think think of Fetch as a software company, right? We're we're eighty percent software, twenty percent hardware, right? Something like that. So there's there's constantly people who are building new capabilities for these robots. They allow them to interact with new devices in the environment, right? IoT is the theme. Of, of of the show, right? You know, 
interacting with devices in the environment of the robot enriches the capabilities. Right? So with a software update, a robot can suddenly interact with a roll-up door, with a conveyor. Right? Those, those kind of capabilities can be released as software updates. And so uh, having a hardware platform that's literally a platform, something that you can add new and additional capabilities for, it opens up the possibility that you can, you can augment the functionality on the fly. And that in turn means that if for whatever reason, the original product is no longer useful, with software, you can add new capabilities that are hopefully going to make it more useful or useful in different ways. Right? And it's another way to making sure, it's another way to make sure that that robot doesn't, doesn't sort of end up in the corner collecting dust. So last question for you. This will be this will be the curveball of curveballs. Good. So, you know, for listeners out there, most people are not watching this on video. Uh, they've de- de- no doubt detected a lovely Austrian accent. The most famous Austrian of all, of course, the high point of his career was spent battling against the robots. What can you tell us as the second most famous Austrian what are some of the things you're most hopeful about in the coming decade that we're going to see from robots and robotics? Not necessarily, you know, zebra and fetch related, although certainly uh, would love to hear more about what's coming down the pipe for you guys. But what are some things towards the end of this decade that you're really excited about that you think more than make up for rising threat of the, the, the robots rising up against us? What are some things to be excited about? <laughs> I think sensor, so sensor technologies have been sort of the, the wave that, that, that's given momentum um, to robotics here over the last 10 years. And I think that's the space that everyone's watching, right? Um, I'm curious to see what's happening with LIDARs. I'm curious to see what's happening with 3D cameras, right? Those are kind of the two ways our robots see. The better we get at, at collecting that data, right, which is the hardware sensor technology itself, the better we get at interpreting that data which is the whole space of you know, machine learning and, and other statistical methods that we use to make sense of that data, like that is going to create a machine that's going to be increasingly versatile, right? So I prefer R2D2 as a model and not the Terminator. Um, but a, <laughs> not Skynet, yeah. <laughs> please. Um, AMRs in particular, right, are, are going to become more versatile. And, and that again, right, that's going to allow them to do more and different things and it's going to make them more flexible, right? So... From a zebra perspective, I, I think what what I'm what I'm really excited about here is the intersection between the robot and and the human workers. Right, our robots are built as a collaborative device. Um, zebra has a lot of experience in, in in enabling human workers to be very efficient, to do um, you know, you know, new and, and, and new things and increase productivity. And so that intersection and specifically orchestrating across both of these worlds, I, I think, is where a lot of Really interesting opportunities are. Let me give you an example. Right, we we have robots in pick modules doing order fulfillment. Right, so when you click on an order in your online shopping site, right, some 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 human worker collects these items and puts them in a box for you and ships them out. And those many times those people work with robots. So robots in pick modules is one of the the sort of the very hot trends here for the last couple of years. But you have also machines in pick modules. You have people on forklifts. Right, the pick module is not just the ground level stuff, it's also the high level storage where you have um, the cases that you use to replenish the material in the pick modules. So how do you coordinate work processes across people in forklifts and people that work with robots, right? Today, those are silos, right? The people that work with robots are, are sort of, you know, working optimized by a software, a software component, but it's in a silo, right? The people that work in forklifts, they're, they're also using devices, they're using zebra devices. And 
And, and yet they don't know about where the robots are and they don't know what the next thing is that the robot's going to do. Now imagine a system that knows about what the people in the forklifts are going to do, what the people with the robots are going to do, and then also what the people with the cars and the people in Packout are going to do, right? If you gradually get the ability to connect and, and instrument and, and automate and optimize not just the collaborative robots, but also the people that do the work, I think you can, that, that's a space where you see a lot of value. So that's, I'm, I'm excited about the, the human workers, um, the variable devices, and the collaborative automation stopping to be silos and starting to talk to each other. So, Stefan, next time we have you on the show, I want to ask you to, to start by playing the other side of that and answering the question, you know, if we're not careful, robotics will dot, 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 and talking about, you know, some of the things that, that concern you with maybe technology going too far or developing along the wrong evolutionary peaks. But for now, as we move to wrap, what's next for Fetch? What's next for Zebra? This will probably go to air sometime in October what can folks expect to see from you guys in the months that roll on from there? You, you, you're going to see us start to explore these these intersections between workers with variable devices and collaborative robots. Right? You're going to see us sort of add capabilities to the variable devices that allow a worker to easily call a robot. And then you're going to see us go into sort of orchestrated workflows where you know the workers play a role and the robots play a role and the coordination happens across both the human component and the machine component. And that's that's the space that we're we're really excited about and that's where we're anxious to go to. That's fantastic. And I know you, like myself, are a big fan of the IoT space generally. We always love to plug the underdogs on the show. Who's doing good work out there that you think not enough people are talking about? All right. I, I, I got one for you. It's not it's not a B2C IoT play. Um I, I you know the, the company that continues to impress me is sick. Right, so SICK manufactures the lidar scanners that are now robots. Can you and they, spell that for us? S I C K. S I C K. Got it. German sensor sensor technologies manufacturer, and they built a really cool IoT gateway box. Right, it's around a thousand dollars. It is a, a essentially a, a designed for an industrial environment. Imagine like a blue box. It's got a Wi-Fi connection. It's got an Ethernet connection, and then it has all the analog and digital and industrial connections that you need to hook it up to any kind of equipment, whether it's a door, a conveyor, a sensor, anything you want to get an input from or actuate in an industrial environment. The SIC allows the SIC TDC is that gateway component. It allows you to cloud connect that device. Right. So if you have an air shower and you want it to pop up in your cloud orchestrated middleware. The SIG TDC is what you want to use, right? And we have fully integrated the SIG TDC, and it allows the robots to interact with the environment in any way you can imagine. All right, folks, you heard it here first. Big over there tip of the cap to the folks at SIG. So this is the last episode of Season 1. So if you've been following the show, everyone, welcome to the end of Season 1. We're going to be kicking off Season 2 shortly. Last question. So for folks that have enjoyed the episode today, they want to keep up with your story how can the folks out there at TV land keep up with Stefan? So find me on LinkedIn. And I'm I, I'm a huge in-person fan. Find me at Modex, find me at ProMed, find me at any of the trade shows. Let's go have a beer. Let's go have a coffee. But LinkedIn is the way to sort of get updates on, on what I'm up to. Cool. And uh, that's Stefan Neusser. You can see it in both in the, uh, the title of the episode. Uh, Stefan spelled S-T-E-F-A-N, Neusser, N-U-S-S-E-R. He's on LinkedIn. Check him out. That's it for today, folks. And that is it for season one. It's been a journey. 
both IoT and this podcast. We appreciate you guys sticking with us. My name is Ryan Prosser. If you have an idea for a topic or a guest, please reach out on LinkedIn. We are currently loading up our guest roster for next season. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys on the internet. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.